And greetings, brethren, all around the world. Welcome to the Feast of Tabernacles 2009. It's good that so many of us can be together. We're expecting over 7,000 people this year, and we're very grateful. We've been having growth this past year, more than in recent years, in a church attendance, certainly in television responses, and in every way. And we're very grateful for that. Brethren, this is my 61st feast. I first attended the Feast of Tabernacles back in 1949 with Mr. Armstrong officiating, and no other minister was preaching at that time. It was back in Belknap Springs, up in Oregon, out east of Eugene, in the mountains of Oregon, and former president uh, had been there. One of our former presidents, Herbert Hoover, used to go there to this same resort for fishing on occasion. So it had been a nice place, but was now getting a little older, but very, very beautiful. A great big stone lodge and uh, surrounded by big fir trees, a rushing mountain stream next door where some of us younger people could hike and all kinds of things. Great big stone fireplace, which is nice because of the rainy, cool weather. We had about 70 people back then, and now we're expecting about 7,000 now. So we're very grateful for what Christ is doing and helping us, as we've been doing for 16 and a half years, reviving the church of God and reviving the work of God. During the feast back then, Mr. Herbert Armstrong gave 17 sermons in a row. He really did. He gave the opening night plus all eight days, the seven days of the feast, plus the great high day, he would give sermons morning and afternoon. So he gave 17 sermons. Of course, he was only 57 years old back then, 22 years younger than I am now, but he was a human dynamo, very energetic, very dedicated. And he went over the entire plan of God during the Feast of Tabernacles uh, much more than we can today because the sermons back then lasted about two hours each. I don't mean the service. I mean just the sermon. The services often lasted two and a half or three hours depending on circumstances. But it was all new to us. So we were very excited and it was a very inspiring feast way back in 1949. And then we were there in 50 and 51, and then in 1952, we moved to uh, down to Sigler Springs in Northern California, and then in 53 to Big Sandy in East Texas, where it was an even larger feast at that time. So we're grateful for the growth that we've had and able being able to revive the very work of God. And brethren, during these past 60 years that I've been involved in the work of God, I have seen things happen, as Mr. Armstrong said, all the major events begin to come together. Many have already happened, as I've explained many times in prophetic sermons. But prophetic events certainly are speeding up. And I think most of you know that. Most of you sense that something deep is wrong. Something big is going on underneath the surface and sometimes on the surface with literally millions of people losing their jobs our whole national character, not only in America, but Canada, Britain, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, and elsewhere, our whole national character is being changed. And in America, changed swiftly and changed dramatically. And it's frightening, in a sense, to many people who do not understand. But most of us do understand because we've been talking about it for years. And it is happening. And God's prophecy and God's word stands sure these things are occurring that we've talked about for so many years. So we need to realize that we have had 
problems in this nation and massive problems are looming all over the world. Our local Charlotte Observer newspaper recently had a big headline, One Billion People Hungry. And all over the world, people are getting hungry. There, there, there are hundreds of millions of them here, other hundreds of millions there that are lacking in food. They haven't starved, but they're in living on below subsistence level as far as economics and even food. And they are beginning to starve to death, literally starve to death in many nations, as you know. So we need an intervention by the great God. And if there is a God, he is going to intervene. And that's what this feast partly pictures. We know that this world desperately needs righteous government. Righteous government. And the Feast of Tabernacles pictures that time when Christ will be back on this earth as King of kings and Lord of lords, and we will finally have righteous government. I know there are going to be traumatic things happening first, but this intervention by God Almighty our Father, Jesus Christ, our Savior, is something to really look forward to very, very much because we're going to have the opportunity not only to be saved and blessed ourselves, but we're going to have the opportunity to literally help and encourage and serve millions of people collectively. We will save hundreds of millions and even billions once Christ comes and we're in his kingdom, if we make it, if we do our part. So let's think about that. Turn with me, brethren, if you would, to Revelation, the book of Revelation, chapter 11. I'm going to begin in a very famous passage, but it's good to review this at the beginning of the feast. Revelation 11 has been describing some of the woes that are going to happen, these prophetic events at the very time of the end, and the trumpet sounds, of course, that portray tremendous interventions of God. And he says in verse 15, Then the seventh angel sounded the seventh trumpet. And there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdoms of this world, not up in heaven, of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Now, people sing about that in sometimes the Messiah or the Elijah oratorios, and they'll have various passages, King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and it's very inspiring, and they have all these nice choirs singing, but most people don't really believe that. They don't know about the real God of the Bible. They don't believe in the Christ of the Bible. They think of Jesus as a little helpless baby, little Lord Jesus away in a manger, and their mind is guided by the invisible Satan, the devil, to focus on that, and not on the fact that Christ is now, right this minute, at God's right hand in heaven, working with the Father to orchestrate these world events, to guide events in our lives, to test us, to train us, to fashion and mold us, so we can be those kings and priests in the coming kingdom of God to help rule this world with righteous government, but under the perfect direction, the inspired direction of Jesus Christ as king over all the other kings, king of kings and lord of lords. So Christ is coming back to rule the kingdoms of this world, and he shall reign forever. Boy, we better think about that. And like the book of Revelation finishes two or three times, he said, Come quickly, Lord Jesus. And that should be our motto, to think about it, if we really understand how much this world needs that event. 
Turn with me now back to Zechariah 14, if you would, brethren. Zechariah chapter 14 in your Bible. And here, the book of Zechariah is kind of a transition book because it's right near the end of the Old Testament and it transitions right over into the New Testament in many ways. But here's what God inspired. And this is the inspired Word of God. We're not inventing this. This has always been there. And may have many new people here for the first time. And I hope all of you can realize this is not something that Christ wouldn't preach. He did preach it, I'm sure. He put it, he inspired it in his word. Christ is the word in person. And this book, the Bible, is the written word of God. Zechariah chapter 14, verse 1. God tells us, "...the behold, the day of the Lord is coming." And your spoil will be divided in your midst, for I, God, will gather all nations to battle against Jerusalem. This city on the earth where I've been a number of times, Jerusalem, is going to be involved. Jerusalem will still be there. Other cities may be blotted out by this time from terrible wars, but Jerusalem will still be there. The city shall be taken, the houses rifled, and the women ravished. Half of the city shall go into captivity, but the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. So here God describes in this book over 2,000 years ago a city, Jerusalem, that is divided. And when you read it carefully, you can see that half of the people there are Jewish and half of the people are Gentile. And we're getting pretty close to that right now. Two types of people in Jerusalem. God predicted this. How could he know? How could that as Zechariah know? Because God knew and God inspired the situation in Jerusalem. He says then in verse 9, And the Lord shall be king over all the earth, uh, and his name one. So we know that uh, uh, he is going to be king over all the earth. And I skipped over uh, verse 3 back here. He says, Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle when Christ comes back. And in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is east of Jerusalem. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from the east to the west, making a very large valley. Powerful earthquakes, divine intervention, Christ coming back to fight. Again, the world often thinks of little Lord Jesus. It does not think of Christ sitting at God's right hand and Christ the warrior king coming back to crush the nations that are rebels and help them wake up. These strong, powerful, arrogant, cruel dictators all over the world today, frankly, and other men down through time, like our recent ones, Adolf Hitler, Benito Mussolini, Stalin, Mao Zedong, these other people have crushed people. What's going to get their attention? Not a lot of sweet talk. They're not going to listen to sweet talk. They will listen to only one thing, and that is overwhelming force. Overwhelming force. The living Christ, the Christ of the book of Revelation, will certainly apply that force, but in wisdom and in love to wake them up. It says in verse 16, And it shall come to pass that everyone who is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to worship the King of hosts, or the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. Who's going to go up? A few Jews? No! The whole world, all the nations that fought against Jerusalem. And he said earlier, they would all be there, at least representatives of them. And it shall be that whichever of the families of the earth do not come up to Jerusalem to worship the king, they're not going to come up to watch the Jews. They themselves, of the various families of this whole earth, 
will come up to worship the king. And if they do not come up to worship Christ, even the Muslims and the Buddhists and the Shintoists and the Hindus and all these others who do not believe in Christ, they are going to come up. And if they do not come up, then there will be no rain. God will get their attention that way. If the family of Egypt, which will tend to look on this as a Jewish festival and not want to come up, will not come up and enter in. They shall have no rain, and they shall receive the plague with which the Lord strikes the nations who do not come up to keep, not watch others keep, they themselves keep the Feast of Tabernacles. This shall be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations who do not come up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. My brethren, most Protestants, Catholics, they don't understand this. This has been in the Bible all these years. They don't like to think about this. It's practically never read in those churches. This is going to happen. And this is going to start happening probably within the next 15 to 20 years or less. Probably less. But we don't know that because we cannot set actual dates. Christ's feet will be on this earth. And these people will start keeping the feasts of God. And they will keep God's Seventh-day Sabbath as he commanded. And they will do the things that God said. And the true Sabbath, the Seventh-day Sabbath, will remind them that God is the Creator. They'll focus their mind on the true God. And these festivals that God gave, seven of them, seven major feasts, holy days, picture God's plan. And they will learn God's plan, which they never learned in their Protestant and Catholic churches never, never will learn in those places, only by keeping God's feasts, only by being taught by true servants of God. That's the way they will learn. So, brethren, we need to realize this is a wonderful time coming when Christ will rule the whole world, and if we overcome, we can assist him in doing that. And, brethren, it's going to be wonderful. Can you picture the magnificent bands and choirs and orchestras coming up to Jerusalem and having great musical concerts and maybe as these different nations come in with their national entourage and maybe their flags and their leaders marching into Jerusalem, the entourage, the glory, the powerful, magnificent processions. God is not against things like that, by the way, when they're used to honor him. You see examples like that over and over in the Old Testament. Some kids grow up and think they're having fun because they're little sparkling lights and, and stuff at Christmas time or eggs and colored things at Easter time. There are going to be lots of things like that at the Feast of Tabernacles. We're going to have beautiful lights, beautiful music, beautiful dancing, beautiful rejoicing all over this earth. And especially with millions of people gathered in and around Jerusalem, the voices raising up the magnificent things that are going to happen. Maybe Christ himself will put on a sound and light show, so to speak, like these people do in these places in Europe and the Middle East, as you know, if you travel there. He can do things like that during the feast, such as has never been before. And you young people are going to see things that you have never dreamed before. You're not going to be sad and wishing you had some of the old rock music and screaming and yelling. You're going to learn what beautiful music is. You're going to learn how to bring tears to people's eyes, tears of joy to be released from the prisons, to be released from concentration camps and work camps, to be released from being prisons, from prisoners all over the world, from being sick and infirm and having their eye put out and their ear blown off. I remember being in Europe in 1954, not that long after the Second World War. 
and especially in Germany and in Central Europe, we saw literally thousands of people missing ears and eyes and limbs such as I had never seen before in my entire life up to that time. In the 24 years I'd been living, I'd never seen that many. In all those years put together, as in that one short time, a week or two, right there in Central Europe. But the Second World War did. This coming war and series of wars actually is going to do a lot more. God is going to intervene and bring peace before man would blow himself off this planet. And we're going to have the opportunity to help these people and encourage them and teach them the way of peace. Turn back to uh, now uh, John 7. Go now to your New Testament, if you would, briefly, to John chapter 7. And here we find Jesus Christ. Remember, brethren, Jesus Christ set us an example that we should follow in his steps. John writes, after these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he did not want to walk in Judea because the Jews sought to kill him. So he did his ministry and went here and there in Galilee. Now the Jews' Feast of Tabernacles was at hand. Now John was the last one to write a gospel, as all the authorities, even Protestants, admit this. So some of the people, this was after 70 A.D., and they wouldn't have known what feast he was talking about, unless they talked about it being the Jews' Feast. It was God's feast, but Jesus said salvation is of the Jews, as you know back in John 4, very clearly. And they were keeping this feast. His brothers, therefore, said to him, he had physical brothers. Mary was not the Virgin Mary then. She went on to have at least three other sons and two other uh, two daughters. His brothers said, depart from here and go to Judea, that your disciples may also see the works that you're doing. For no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For even his brothers did not believe in him. Some of us are discouraged sometimes that some of our children or relatives don't believe. Believe in Jesus Christ, the very Son of God, who was the older brother, setting the example in the home. Even his younger brothers did not believe on him until after his resurrection. And then we see they begin to understand. Then Jesus said, My time has not yet come, but your time is always ready. Of course, they were carnal. They were part of this world. The world, therefore, cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its works are evil. You go up to this feast. Would Christ tell people to go up and keep the feast of Baal or some pagan feast or something wrong? Of course not. Christ was Emmanuel, God with us. He told his brothers, you go up and keep this feast. It was God's feast, not just the Jews' feast. I am not yet going up to keep this feast, for my time has not yet come. And when he said these things, he remained in Galilee. But when his brothers had gone up, then he also went up. Christ went up to the feast, not openly, but as it were in secret. He didn't want to make a big procession because they might kill him prematurely. And so in the, verse 14, now about the middle of the feast, Jesus went into the temple and taught. So Christ began to teach, and he was there during and keeping the Feast of Tabernacles, setting us an example that we should follow in his steps, as the Bible says. And the Jews marveled, saying, How does this man know letters, having never studied? Jesus answered and said, My doctrine is not mine, but his who sent me. 
If any man wants to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. Yes, you can know by the fruits, and you're going to know by the fruits from this work, and many of you do. Who is preaching the full truth? Who is doing the work? And as time goes on, God's going to back us up with even greater miracles and healings and blessings and the power of Almighty God as we learn to truly walk with God. And brethren, I sincerely digressing here, but I think he's going to humble and shake us, even the church of God, and draw us closer to him so he can grant us even more of these gifts. But all the early Christians kept the Feast of Tabernacles. If any of you are new or your brethren haven't read it, please write in for my absolutely free booklet, as you know, The Holy Days, God's Master Plan. The Holy Days, just write for the booklet on the Holy Days, and uh, you can have this whole thing proved in detail. Through the New Testament, it shows they kept God's festivals. And then we have many references in early church history showing the early Christians kept the Sabbath and God's festivals. They knew it was not changed except as the black-robed monks began to change everything during what is properly called the Dark Ages. It was indeed dark as the powers of Satan took over and the truth was gradually crushed out of so-called Christianity. They kept God's feasts. Let's go back to Leviticus 26 now, and I would say this to those of you who are new, we turn here, not because this is the main proof, all the other things in the booklet are the main proof, but this happens to be the simplest place, the only place in the Bible where they're all mentioned, but they're mentioned in the instruction to the Levites, as they are elsewhere too, of course, but they're mentioned here in detail because it describes all the sacrifices, which we do not need to keep, and all of our... New Testament understanding shows us that clearly, but we do keep the festivals as were kept without the sacrifices and washings uh, that were put on the Sabbath, the feasts, every day of the year they had morning and evening sacrifices. So God didn't do away with every day of the year when those were changed, just, just the days continued on with this meaning. Leviticus 23 verse 1. And the Eternal spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel to say to them, The feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations, these are my feasts. Not Jewish feasts, God's feasts, the great Creator's feasts. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of solemn rest. So first he starts out with the weekly feast, the Sabbath. Then verse 4, These are the feasts of the eternal, holy convocations, commanded assemblies, that's what it means, commanded assemblies, which you shall proclaim at their appointed times, or as the King James says, in their seasons, which is better, because they're based on the seasons, the harvest seasons of Palestine, describing an early harvest and a later harvest that was much greater. On the 14th day of the first month, the twilight is the eternal's Passover, the Lord's Passover, The Passover was given by God to portray 3,000 years ahead of time the death of Jesus Christ for our sins. And it was given way ahead, uh, you know, of when this happened. Of course, it was given, I should say, 3,000 years, but 1,400 or 500 years before Christ came. And uh, this was given by God hundreds of years ahead of time. They killed this perfect, unblemished male lamb, and the whole thing portrayed the perfect, unblemished sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Keep the Passover, the Lord's Passover. And on the 15th day of the same month is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And so first you keep 
and observe and learn that you've got to repent of your sins and come under the blood of Jesus Christ as the Passover pictures. Next, you get leaven out of your lives. Leaven is a type of sin. The next phase of God's plan, you grow in grace and in knowledge. I'm just hitting the high spots now. And then he tells you after a number of uh, instructions that you're to count in verse 15 for yourselves from the day that you offer the wave sheaf, you're to count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath, which would be a Sunday. Then after you offer the new grain offering to the Lord, you shall bring from your habitations two wave loaves. These are first, first fruits to the Lord. And then he describes it. And this is, of course, the Feast of Pentecost or the Feast of First Fruits, as it's called in the Old Testament. And verse 21, you shall proclaim on the same day that it is a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it. It shall be a statute forever in your dwellings throughout your generations. And God tells us back in Leviticus, I don't mean Leviticus, but Ezekiel chapter 36 and elsewhere, that we are going to learn the statutes of God and keep them during the millennium. The statutes include the holy days, They include tithing. They include circumcision, but now of the heart. And the holy days are kept without the sacrifices. But they include these things that we're to do. It's a statute forever. And so this picture is the early harvest in Palestine, a small spring harvest. And that's all God is calling. It shows that God is not trying to save the whole world yet. Then you go to verse 24 saying, The seventh month on the first day of the month you shall have a Sabbath of rest, a memorial of blowing of trumpets, a holy convocation. It's a blowing of trumpets. Now, throughout the Old Testament, trumpets were used as a signal, usually an alarm of war. And the Feast of Trumpets picture is not just the seventh trump. It includes that. But it's not just that. It's trumpets, more than one. The whole series of wars and convulsions at the end of the age, just before Christ comes as king of kings on the seventh trump, as we saw in Revelation 11, verse 15. And so the Feast of Trumpets is kept next in the seventh month. Interestingly, in the seventh month of God's calendar, the month of completion, that's where you have all the final events to complete God's plan. Then, verse 27, on the tenth day of the seventh month shall be the day of atonement at one matter, making one. It shall be a holy convocation for you. You shall afflict your souls. Most of us recently observed that. A time of fasting and showing a time that we will be at one with God because Satan the devil will be banished. He won't even be here then. Then the world can truly become at one with God. And then in verse 31, he says, You shall do no manner of work during the feast of, or day of atonement It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations and all your dwellings. It will be a Sabbath of rest, and you're to afflict your soul. You're to fast. Then, verse 33, he spoke, saying, The fifteenth day of the seventh month shall be the Feast of Tabernacles. That's where we are now. It's called the Feast of Ingathering. In one of the Old Testament scriptures, it's called the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles, temporarily dwelling places. Often it was called the Feast of Ingathering in ancient Israel because it was talked about the great fall harvest, the ingathering at that time, but also it pictured a dual meaning, really, that they were dwelling in booths temporarily looking forward to, of course, the kingdom of God. 
And that's what we are. We're strangers and pilgrims looking forward to the kingdom of God. And they were to keep it that first day as a holy convocation and do no work. Verse 36, seven days you'll offer an offering. And then in the eighth day, you shall have a holy convocation and offer an offering. It is a sacred assembly. And so on the eighth day was a special feast. And that pictures the final event in God's plan. Trumpets pictures the alarm of war, Christ's return. Atonement pictures the world becoming fully at one with God after Satan's banishment. Then the feast of ingathering pictures the great fall harvest when the whole world is going to be taught the truth during the millennium. And the fact we're dwelling in booths, temporary dwelling places, looking forward to that time. And then you find the great high day The last great day, as we call it, is picturing the time when all human beings who have never had a chance, who were blinded, and frankly that includes hundreds of millions in Britain and America and all of our nations too, they did not know, they did not understand. But the hundreds of millions who were blinded and never really understood the truth will not be given a second chance. Don't let anyone play that trick on you. It's not a second chance. It's a first genuine opportunity. Because God says the world is blinded. If they're blinded, they don't have a chance. God, to be fair, he is impartial. He must give them a genuine opportunity. And this last great day pictures that opportunity. And our booklet on the holy days, God's master plan describes that. And my entire booklet, by the way, Your Ultimate Destiny, uh, makes that even more understandable and complete. So write for those And I think you'll begin to understand the whole purpose of human existence much better, any of you who are new. And all of us need to review the meaning of these feasts from time to time, and I hope that we will. Brethren, turning now to the book of Revelation again, I want to turn back there briefly here and uh, be sure that we cover this at least. Not keep you too long this evening, but we want to get at the basic things here as we start this festival back in Uh, Revelation chapter 2 and turn to verse 26. Again, a very uh, fundamental verse I often refer to. God says here, and this is Christ speaking in the first person in the book of Revelation. Verse 26, And he who overcomes, are you an overcomer? Are you studying and praying and meditating and fasting and trying to walk with God, walk with Christ, overcome yourself? overcome the world, overcome Satan, and let Christ live in you and produce fruit through you. He who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. We're not going to go floating off to heaven with nothing to do. That whole paradigm, that whole model of Christianity is so wrong. And I grew up in it in a mainstream church, and most of you did. It just simply pictures a false Christ, a false God, a false plan of salvation. The overcomers will be given power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the potter's vessel shall be broken in pieces. Why with a rod of iron, I used to think? Well, I explained it a minute ago. These big dictators are not going to listen to anything but overwhelming force. When Christ comes back, he's going to crush that rebellion. And then, and only then, they will listen. So we will have at first a rod of iron. 
yet we will also have to have great wisdom and patience and love and kindness to the hundreds of millions of people who are coming out of the captivity and the suffering and the anguish and the sickness and disease and come back weeping and crying and asking for help. And we'll have to take them in our arms literally and figuratively as well and comfort them and help them. But first, we've got to deal with the bad guys. As I also received from my father, Jesus said, yes, he received that too, that he would rule the nations. But the saints, his saints are to do that same job, assisting him. He is king of the other kings. Now turn it over to chapter 5, Revelation 5 and verse uh, 9. He'd been talking about the prayers of the saints in verse 8. And they sang a new song, the saints of God. And here's this inspired prayer from God's saints. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals for you. Obviously, Christ were slain. Christ died for our sins. And we want to have a continuing appreciation of that, brethren, now and forever. We're the church of the forgiven. We're not better than others. Let's not think we're better than all these people out here running around in the various places where we're meeting. They don't yet understand. They don't understand. They don't get it. God has not yet opened their minds. We are the church of the forgiven, and we can be forgiven if we really repent. Or to repent means change, and with all our hearts try to surrender to let Christ live his life in us. And so he says, you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood, by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. He paid the penalty out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests. God has made us in advance. What God says shall be done. God is one who calls those things which be not as though they were. As it says back in Romans chapter 4 and verse 17. When God says this is going to happen, it's going to happen. Even though it hasn't happened yet, nothing can stop it. God told Abraham, I have made you a father of many nations. When did those many nations come forth? Generations later. Abraham died without ever seeing all of that. But God said it. And it did happen and will happen. And he spoke of it as though it was already done because it was since God said it would happen. And so I have made you kings and priests to our God. If we overcome and do our part, of course, there are conditions. But if we remain saints of God and are in the first place genuine saints of God through real conversion, God has made us already in his plan that nothing can stop kings and priests great leaders to assist Christ in bringing peace and justice in ruling and teaching the ways of God to the hundreds of millions of confused, hurting people all over this earth who'll be wandering around wondering what's going on after all these terrible plagues and earthquakes and the water turned to blood and things all over this earth. And they'll be willing to listen at that time, believe me, the vast majority. So we'll teach them as kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. Not up in heaven, never says that. We shall reign on this earth. That's our reward, and that's something to look forward to so much. Turn now, brethren, to Psalm 72, and let's get a little picture of Christ's rule and, of course, of the kind of rule that we're going to have to uh, impose and follow if we're assisting the living Jesus Christ at that time. Turn to Psalm 72. I've got a little tea here. Psalm 72. 
verse 1. Give the king your judgments, O God, and your righteousness to the king's son. See, this is talking about Christ and his righteous rule. He will judge your people with righteousness. Brethren, as you see all the corruption in our government, the horrible corruption in the British government and all over this world, you realize that one of the greatest needs of this entire earth is righteous government. We have these horrible despots and dictators throughout Africa oppressing their people, uh, raping and pillaging and plundering and torturing their people and killing them. It's awful. We need righteous government on this earth. The world is crying out for righteous government. And Christ is going to bring it. He will judge with righteousness and you're poor with justice. The poor people need real help. The mountains will bring peace to the people and the little hills by righteousness. He will bring justice to the poor of the people. He will save the children of the needy and will break in pieces the oppressor. Yes, he will deal with the bad guys powerfully. They shall fear you as long as the sun and moon endure. Christ's government is going to last. They're not going to have another election. A lot of men voting for what they want. They may not like it at first, but they're going to learn to like it because it is the right way as long as the sun and moon endure. Throughout all generations, he shall come down like rain upon the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days, the righteous shall flourish and abundance of peace until the moon is no more. A beautiful description of Christ's coming government. He, Christ, shall have dominion from sea to sea and from river to the ends of the earth. Those who dwell in the wilderness shall bow before him and his enemies will lick the dust. The kings of Tarshish and the isles will bring presents. The kings of Sheba and Seba will offer gifts. Yes, all kings, not a few kings, all kings shall fall down before him. We see that as we already saw in Revelation 11, verse 15, and all the other places showing that the other kings of the earth, when Christ comes, bow down before him. For he will deliver the needy when he cries, the poor also, and him who has no helper. He will spare the poor and the needy. He's going to especially help and comfort and encourage these people. We've got to have that same mind. We've got to study this book and learn to give, to help, to serve to try to help people realize the way of God, the law of God. We won't just be, be giving them all kinds of government handouts, frankly, brethren, with a printing press, printing money that will soon be debased and bring on massive inflation as is beginning to occur in America. But we're going to give them genuine jobs and, and ways to learn and grow and a kind of society where it will really work and people will learn to work six days and rest the seventh day and yet produce things that will last and a society that is fair, where the smart guys won't take advantage of the weak anymore. He will spare the poor and the needy, and will save the souls of the needy. He will redeem their life from oppression and violence, and precious shall be their blood in his sight. So, brethren, we want to really understand that. We have this opportunity, and God has called a number of you, all of us out of this world at this time to help us know what is really going on. What is the meaning of our nations crashing around us? What is the meaning of our whole way of life being changed? What is the meaning of the coming drought, famine, disease epidemics, massive earthquakes beyond anything the world has ever seen? What is the meaning? It's to shake the nations and prepare the way for Christ's coming so people will listen 
And you and I are called out ahead of time to understand, to grow, to develop the mind of Jesus Christ and prepare to be those kings and those priests or teachers to teach the world, the whole world, the way of God. So that's why we're here at this feast. And I hope we can really use the time in that way, brethren. Let us fill our minds with this approach of loving, of helping, of mercy and kindness and service to our fellow man and to the whole world to learn how to do it during this feast. And let us constantly cry out to God and rejoice as he wants us to, but draw really close to him, our Father and our Savior and High Priest, Jesus Christ, during this festival by extra study and meditation, fervent prayer, and great rejoicing before the Creator of the universe by keeping His festivals in the places He has designated. Let's do that. Let's worship Him. And now, as we wind up this first evening of the feast, let's go to our places after visiting and loving one another, of course, encouraging one another, and get a good night's rest and come back tomorrow with open minds and hearts, having prayed for God's blessing, for God's presence on the feast in every way. Good night, brethren, and may God be with you.